Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 39 of the Creative Writing Motorcycle Podcast. This is El Crumio Producero, yours truly, and I hope you've been enjoying every single one of our episodes thus far. Episode 39, we are almost to our landmark 40th episode. Uh, please, if you if you like what you hear, or if you don't like what you hear, email the show at creativewritingpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. Leave us a review in iTunes, Google Play Store, uh, Dogcatcher, Ogcatcher, uh, Podsafe. Ah, there's a ton of places that we're at. So wherever you're getting your stuff, leave us a review, uh, especially at soundcloud.com or iTunes, because then I'll be able to personally see them and uh, respond directly. And always, if you have any questions or information regarding show topics or guests of the show or you have a cool idea or would like to be on the show shoot up our email at um, shoot it up <laughs> shoot up the email at creative writing podcast at gmail.com uh, hit us up on facebook.com forward slash creative writing podcast um, or don't send smoke signals I won't be able to see those as uh, we're located here in Southern California and uh, the Apparently, this half of the state has decided that it's just going to catch on fire this month. So, alrighty. Well, to start off with this show, I'd like to say welcome to our new format. So much stuff ends up going on in the middle of the week that, you know, if you're doing your podcast or if you're listening to the radio, a lot of times you miss some stuff. I've been mentioning some stuff in the news, and then a week later, other people mention it, and it's like, wow. So, it's interesting being either forward or behind. So our new format, I'm going to do a Sunday, Monday ride and event report, then a Tuesday, Wednesday, and then a Thursday. And these things usually go out, you know, Friday or Saturday, depending on what's happening. So yeah, interestingly enough, I'm going to try and break this thing up into a couple days over the, over the week, make it, you know, not stand here and ramble for an hour. You won't know that, but uh, it'll break it up for me into, uh, you know, 15 or 20 minute segments where we can talk about stuff that's been happening uh, throughout the week instead of just uh, trying to recap everything in one day and then missing something here or there. So maybe a little bit more flexibility. Let's see how it works. All right, let's get into it and see how this show is going to pan out. Alright everybody, welcome to the Ride Report for Sunday, Monday. Uh, something I wanted to talk about this week was the fires. Fires in the area, fires have been plaguing SoCal, especially uh, the Angeles Nationalist National uh, Forest here in, in my part of SoCal for, gosh, it seems like a couple months now. And what does that have to do with motorcycling? Well, let me tell you, nobody likes to ride around in that stuff, first of all. Hey, it's tragic enough that people all over, you know, have their homes threatened, lots of animals, uh, the places where these fires are occurring are kind of rural for Los Angeles, I guess, you know, and uh, lots of animals being threatened, lots of wildlife obviously being displaced and you know, those are all important parts of the whole reason we like to ride is we like to get out of town. We like to get into the twisties and see all the beautiful scenery and nature. 
anybody that knows uh, right now, California is in like a horrible drought, right? We need some of that water that's getting dumped on the East Coast. We should use that big oil pipeline that we're building across the U.S. and ship it out here. I swear we could solve two problems with one pipeline there. Now, also, not to mention just the air quality, but also the visibility becomes horrible. I took several personal pictures over the course of the last two well, let's, yeah, let's say two months now of you know, what looks like storm clouds in the sky. Those aren't storm clouds, those are that smoke from the, from the fires. A few of them overlapped each other. And all in all, California is only uh, second right now, I think, compared to uh, Wyoming, I believe, has like this crazy 111,000 acres being burned in the state. So not Wanwa, California, but the whole, whole West. I mean, we got fires in Oregon, uh, Wyoming, Colorado. Uh, Nevada, you know, Nevada does have some trees and bushes in it somewhere. Um, Those are burning. I think, um, I think even Washington might have some. Canada had a real, if they don't have a huge one right now, they did. They had one recently that was just like totally decimating thousands and thousands of acres of forest and woods and twisties, right? The mountains. I mean, these things in SoCal, they seem to plague the mountains. Um, Even when I lived in San Diego, there was a fire that burned all the way down pretty much to the border. And I mean, that had happened before, like, I guess in the seventies or the eighties or something like that too. So these things just tend to ravage area that's overgrown and, uh, that has not had a burn in quite a while. And it's, I, you know, honestly, some of the most beautiful places to ride and to get out to. So not only does it affect us as motorcyclists, if we'd like to live out there and be close to where we're riding, uh, it sucks when the air quality is terrible to ride in. And, uh, when I lived up here, first moved up here, there was a a few fires actually that tore up the hills next to where I used to live in Pasadena. And it was the station fire. I used to go mountain biking and this fire hit, you know, this valley that I used to bike in and, uh, just tore it up. And I have pictures of before and after that you would not believe, um, just how lush and green and beautiful it was. And there's like a little year round stream that ran through there. And, the fire came through and it looked like the surface of the moon. Literally everything wiped clean. The rains, I mean, and this, you know, the Southern California fire season is typically like toward the end of summer. So right before when we do get rain, uh, right before all that comes. So, I mean, it just tends to just like destroy everything. And that's the, the, the station fire in particular took out this grove and all the trails where I used to ride. You couldn't get back. I, I'm not even sure if they're hundred percent built up yet. The last time I went, they still weren't the bridges. Uh, the roads were washed away. I mean, we're talking about like roads that had, had existed for years and years and years and years getting washed away with one fire. So it's really, really destructive. And not only that, now I don't have a place to mount bike anymore. They used to have an old, um, I guess in the twenties and thirties, they had cabins up there and they were destroyed by fire. There was a huge fire that ripped through in the thirties back before, uh, Los Angeles had a really good developed, uh, you know, fire capacity to put out, you know, the fire departments to put out the capacity of a wildfire. And so they just used to let the hills burn, you know, and save the city. Now, now that we've got, you know, a little bit more technological, they still were kind of are powerless against some of these fires. So this particular fire, the station fire, they saved Newcomb's Ranch, which is a ranch up in the hills on the two that's really um, kind of like a destination point for riders and car enthusiasts. And not only did they save Newcomb's Ranch, but the road to get up there, the two, Uh, This is a major highway that before, you know, we had interstates, 
I guess this was the way you would get over the hills, you know? So it's been there for a long time and it, and it connects a lot of places and it's like one of the most beautiful roads to ride. That thing was totally destroyed. Parts of it were washed away. Uh, you know, I saw some footage of the firefighters driving up there and the guardrails even were just like melted. I mean, this is a, this is an incredibly hot and destructive fire and the landslides that followed, uh, cause we did get a lot of rain that year, just kept wiping away every bit of progress that the, uh, the Caltrans made, which is like our, um, Caltrans is like our road, you know, they, they do like the infrastructure and roads and transportation and all that. So, you know, fires affect us. And, and, and one, if it's not in a personal way of like we lose our stuff or we know somebody that lives out where they are and they're getting affected and that whole tragedy, then it's like the air quality. It was like raining ashes down here a few weeks ago. So just in the past few months, we've had the San Gabriel complex fire, which was pretty close to me. And uh, that happened on June 20th. And that went for quite a while. I went up there a couple weeks ago, uh, rode up there and man, the hills just look off. And then you'll hit parts that like it didn't even touch and then you'll drive back in further. And it's just, it's so weird seeing like a giant took a razor blade and just like, uh, you know, shaved the hill. Basically everything's gone. You can already see sediment coming down on its own from wind and whatnot because we haven't even had any rain yet now when it rains i don't know if that's going to stay open there's an off-highway vehicle park up there there's this place called uh, crystal lake campground up there that i really like to ride up to and it's a it was a really beautiful ride and it's kind of secluded it's not on the west side where everybody goes like mulholland and the snake and all that it's kind of like a little hidden gem over here um who knows how that's going to be in a couple months when the rains come and you know we're not we're in a drought we're not going to grow back the vegetation that's all going to come crashing down right so it just sucks um the sand fire happened on 723 and that was at the other end of the valley the um the the complex fire was kind of in the east like middle half of the san gabriels the sand fire was on the west side another area popular for riders in tohunga valley and a lot of where the um, the Hanson British Dam ride was last year. If you go to Creative Riding, I took some pictures of that. And, you know, it's a really cool, fun place to also ride. Lots of twisty roads. It actually meets up with the two. I mean, this is like all the hills that we ride in. And if you're not familiar with L.A., I, I know from the movies it looks like a lot of downtown and, you know, big city. But there are quite a bit of hills to get out you know you get out of the city and up into the mountains and they're steep here our mountains are super steep and uh so you're looking at you know when it rains it just like goes for miles down until it just wipes everything out i think that's why it's so destructive when it rains is because our hillsides are so steep so last weekend i went riding over to where the fish canyon fire was that was the uh San Gabriel complex fire part was part of that was over in fish Canyon. And I went riding over there just to check the neighborhood out and everything. And there was a horse ranch over there where it literally burned down to the fence, like the property line, the firefighters must have been there parked on that property staged up squirting because it literally came down to the the property and it was so steep this cliff and you know fire goes uphill really good because of that if it starts at the bottom the flames are already pointing up and you know it just climbs so easily but the fact that it started on the other side and it was going down tells you just how crazy it is now uh just a couple days ago the uh blue cut fire that's raging over in the where the 15 like the cone pass area and that's just berserk because if you think about that, there has not been any trains coming through to LA. There hasn't been, the 15's been closed. You can't get to or from Las Vegas 
or Barstow or anything out there that's on the other side of the Cajon Pass. So we haven't been getting a lot of uh, commerce passing through here. And to get over to Las Vegas, now you got to go all the way around the mountains on the west side and cut back across somehow. And, you know, it takes you probably 12 hours to what used to be a four-hour trip. So it's just incredible what fires can do and how many there are raging right now. And uh, I feel for all you guys on the East Coast that can't ride as well and in the South because you've got rain and flooding. I mean, it's just, it's a berserkoid sort of thing that we live in. And, and as riders, we have to, you know, come, come up against Mother Nature in these sort of ways. But right now, it's pretty incredible. Pretty incredible time. This summer, I think, has been some of the, the craziest uh, weather I've seen in a long time. So it's just really interesting to think about something weird like that, how it affects us as riders. You know what I was just thinking about? There are a lot of rides happening right now and a lot of campouts happening right now also out in wilderness areas. So wherever you are this summer, if you're riding, if you are helping out, if you're if you're an actual firefighter or a volunteer, you know, take it easy and please be safe no matter where you are and what you're riding. Speaking of fires, other things that are heating up right around this time of year is going to be the new motorcycle releases. I've been keeping my eyes peeled, seeing a few things coming down the pipeline. Uh, some things that you know are going to be released to the public real soon, so keep your eyes open and your ears open. Do you open your ears when you listen for bike news? Anyway, yeah, there's going to be a lot of stuff coming down the pipeline soon. This is just about the time when the schedules start to get released um, for new for the motorcycle shows. And this is also just about the time when people are going to be releasing the new models for 2017. So I'm really excited. A lot of people have already come out with some. You know, uh, Yamaha has a couple out. Suzuki has the SV650. And um, I, I think... They were talking about a Jixer, and then they updated it last year instead of re-releasing it. And I think they're going to re-release the 1000 this year. So there's a lot of stuff coming down that, uh, you know, I've, I've said it a couple times, and I've heard other people say it a couple times, because of the Euro 4 regulations, a lot of stuff is either going to get binned or re-released this year. So I'm real excited about that and really excited to see what's going to be coming down the pipes for 2017. Um, already got... A couple things, can't talk about them until the manufacturers talk about them, but it's really interesting to see what sort of stuff is landing out there already. So this is going to be an exciting year. I'm really, really excited to see what does come out that I don't even know about in the next uh, month or so, which is, you know, this is usually right around the time when people start really releasing their preliminary models and stuff like that. I think we're also probably going to be getting... Probably, I, I'm just guessing like some show dates thrown out there right around this time of year. People love to do that. I wanted to talk about something that I uh, came across my plate about touchscreen stuff. And I was thinking about this now that, you know, this is this is sort of the end of summer here. Sturgis usually marks like the, t- you know, the beginning of the end of summer. And so a lot of people are going to be shipping out their uh, cold weather catalogs soon. And I was thinking about, you know, all the new technologies and things that have been happening. That article I read a while back on Biker Digital about screens uh, being integrated into your iPhone. Listen to a podcast a couple weeks ago where they had visited a 
um, electric motorcycle company and everything was integrated right there on your iPhone. I know a lot of stuff, whether they're ICE or electric engines, has apps that will literally turn your smartphone into a, a display, basically, in all your instrument. You know, it's a lot easier to have like this bright color display rather than to make a cluster that has all that crap in it because then you have to go to TFT, which is a thin film transistor versus, um, you know, like LCD or something like that where you can't really display uh, color like you can on a phone. So it just makes sense. Hey, let's make this app. Boom. You got all your readouts and everything. You can switch screens. You can you get telemetry, G-forces. You know, you can figure out all that stuff using your phone's accelerometer. Uh, even the miles per hour, GPS, and all that great stuff. It'll track all that for you, right? Well, something I was thinking about, and I actually heard on um, Wild Wild Radio, Dallas Hageman talking about it, was these new touchscreen controls, whether they be on your phone or integrated into your bikes, uh, what like Harley calls their infotainment system. Um, a lot of other bikes might use the same sort of thing. You know, I know BMW uses a multi multi-functional like a little rolling knob that you roll you like mouse wheel through your stuff and it's probably a little bit inconvenient if you're just like can see something and touch it but here's the deal and uh after looking at uh, cleveland moto i was looking at some of the bikes that that uh, phil waters on that show was selling he's had, had them posted up on facebook and i was looking at the old i don't even think they called them boom audio yet but they had the it was an old pre-rushmore uh road glide on there or street glide i forget what it was on there i think i said it was a street glide and um it yeah it had the old push button radio right and it looked old i mean it looked aged already especially with that nice little lip going around the radio instead of being flat screen like everything we're used to seeing now phones ipads you know even the consoles in our cars now that come with all that wango tango stuff in it so i was thinking man the old grody push button thing right well these touch screen controls um i there's a couple things that that I th- was thinking about after I was thinking about the new infotainment systems and all this boom audio stuff that, that uh, specifically Harley, but a lot of other people have. And now if you're using your phone, is it, um, I, when I use my phone on my bike, I have to take my gloves off. Right. So to use it on the fly, unless you're cruise around without gloves, um, might be a little inconvenient unless you got special gloves. I'm sure they make them cause I think I've seen them for, uh, mechanics gloves and I, I've actually probably seen them in, you know, some, uh, swag and uh, gear mag that I've read somewhere where they had like those little special tips on the fingers. So just a quick aside, real fast, I checked to see, and it looks like there are several, uh, the icon pursuit stealth. Of course, if you get, uh, any fingerless gloves. Harley Davidson makes some gloves. Uh, Olympia Sports 730 touchscreen gloves. Uh, the Icon Pursuit perforated touch. The Field Shear. Um, there's actually a glove called the Icon Device touchscreen. Um, and then I was looking down here, and Ride Apart has actually uh, done a little article on the best touchscreen motorcycle gloves. I could probably put that into the show notes for you. That'd be great because, you know, in cold weather too, especially cold weather. Um, it's an inconvenience to do it when you're just riding when uh, in dry weather, but in cold weather, man, you're, we're talking, you, you need those gloves. You know, you, you really need to keep your hands covered. Something else I was thinking about that really, I mean, if you're using the touch screen on your bike 
and you're using it on the fly or while you're riding. I mean, it's one thing if you're doing it alone on a long stretch of highway where you're the only one that's going to, you know, wad it up if you take your eyes off the road. But I mean, if you're trying to do it in traffic, if you're trying to take an incoming call, I know they have all these like cool gadgets on nowadays. And uh, the thing is, is now you're just as bad as the cagers that are weaving all over texting and, uh, you know, using, trying to dial up your radio station or whatever the hell you're doing. You might as well just be in your car doing that stuff now, right? So that was something else that really, I, I was thinking about everything's turning to touchscreen in cars now too, everything. Uh, you know, you can't do anything anymore without not touching something. I think I'm not 100% sure about this, but there is some redundancy where you have to have hand controls too. Um, you know, basically, you have to be able to control the, the same functions from the steering wheel of the car. It may be the same way on the bikes. I'm not 100% sure because my bike does not even have a tape deck on it. So there you go. <laughs> I don't have to be uh, encumbered by this sort of stuff. But another thing with all this touch screen stuff and all the, the great technology that goes along with it, sure, you can can control the minute degree of what your seat heater is going to be set now and you can control the you know the rider and, and pillion uh, seat heaters and speaker levels and dial in your radio stations and cb and all that crazy stuff right i mean you can do all that that awesome stuff but the other thing is is what happens when you when you crack a screen or you crash or maybe you drop your bike or as we all know if you have a, a iphone or any smartphone i'm guessing I've had my phone overheat a few times, having it set on the dash of the car, trying to use it as GPS. Even just sitting in my pocket out in the sun or sitting down somewhere where it's where it's really sunny and warm, I, it feels like it's on fire in my in my pocket. When you pull it out, it won't even let you access it. It kind of goes into like a fail-safe mode. I've seen videos of moto vlogger guys say the same thing. They're riding with it up using either the camera or using it as a GPS, and it's just so bright at least here in California, that, uh, you know, there's some times when that doesn't work. So what if you're, you have it mounted onto your bars there, mounted up to the front of your bike somewhere, and that happens. And I'm not 100% sure. I'm, I'm guessing, obviously, if it's, if it's integrated into a motorcycle, they have, like, done their testing and vetting of components to make sure it's not going to overheat, or they have an appropriate cooling system uh, set in place, some venting or something to keep it cool. But I mean, that's just one more thing you don't have to worry about with old school controls. And another thing you don't have to worry about is all your, your presets, checking gauges, this and that, everything that's going to be displayed on one shared display with something else. Like I said, something goes wrong with that, whether you crack a screen or not, or whether you know, one component or a wire goes bad in the dash. You don't have anything anymore. I kind, I'm, I'm not saying I'm a Luddite or anything, but I do value the, you know, I, I, I love what you get out of old bikes where if you have a tack and you have a Speedo, your tack goes dead, you have the Speedo. Your Speedo goes dead, you have the tack. Uh, you know, you don't have a clock on there or whatever. You know, that usually doesn't matter. Your headlights aren't wired to the Speedo. Your indicator lights, you can, you know, if the... Um, bulb goes out you can replace the bulb but it doesn't uh, affect the bulb on your high beam indicator you know what i mean like all this all this stuff that we really don't think about as we're moving into this new technology and it's not really up to us to think about it that's the problem is they're taking the thinking and the control kind of out of our hands even though this new technology is awesome it's not without some sort of shortcoming and if something does happen in your dash nowadays you really need to be a um, technician and not a mechanic and that's been a trend for a long time i remember working in a in a body shop for a long time and we were replacing components not parts anymore you know what i mean you you had to be able to diagnose 
in a different sort of way now that everything's moving to uh, controller this, controller that, uh, ECU this, module that. You you know, there's a lot of mechanical parts that are being, frankly, replaced by electrical systems in general. I remember the first time I jumped into a Honda Insight and stepped on the gas because I wanted to hear the electric motor rev and nothing happened. It's because it was throttled by wire. And that is true for most bikes nowadays. A lot of sport bikes have been doing that for a long time. Cruisers and baggers are coming online. And even, you know, like base model nakeds and standards are starting to develop that sort of technology where it's throttled by wire. And so if any of that, any of it's linked to your touchscreen control or, you know, somehow is affected and your or your display goes out, you're screwed. You know what I mean? So like I'm saying, I'm not a Luddite. I'm, I'm down with all this cool technology. But uh, the thing is, is that what what does happen? You can't re- just go in and replace your Speedo anymore, or even buy an aftermarket system now. You got to, you know, rely on what comes with the bike or like in the case of these smartphone apps that pair to your bike, you got to re- rely on you know, basically you're relying on the engineering of that device to integrate with your bike. And when something goes wrong, uh, some of these things that are that are phone related and, and pair, I've heard, I, I can't remember if it was Aprilia or Moto Guzzi that I heard was pairing uh, with the bike. You can link it to your smartphone um, and KTM possibly even that, is, you know, that that's one of the things I'm talking about where that becomes your uh, your cluster your instrument cluster is now your smartphone what happens when you lose your smartphone especially if it's like locked to your bike where you need the phone to remote start the bike or some crazy stuff like that there's there's a whole bunch of stuff that's available right now or coming down the pipeline and that's the sort of things you you kind of got to worry about where in the old days you didn't have to Another thing you didn't have to worry about was making sure that all those uh, functions and displays are working and telling you the right thing before you just go. You know, you used to do your T-clocks, you're out of there. So that's just a couple of things with touch screens that concern me. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, fans of motorcycles and everything motorcycling, you've come to the right podcast because I've got some news for you. Welcome to the Tuesday, Wednesday Ride Report. Uh, I want The first thing I want to talk about is the Peoria TT. I don't know if you got a chance to watch it. I didn't get a chance to watch all of it live. I had to go back and watch some of it uh, today, which is Tuesday. Um, and I have to say that what an amazing race. I already knew Henry Wiles won. Now, spoiler alert. <laughs> Whoops. All right. So listen, Henry, Henry Wiles took his 12th consecutive, uh, Peoria TT. Um, the only person I can think of, and, and they talked about this multiple times during the race is, uh, former seven time grand national champion, Chris Carr has won the Peoria TT a total of 13 times. Now, if you think about combining him and Wiles together, and the Peoria TT, I believe, has only been around for 68 years, uh, together, both of them have won a combined 432% of the total amount of years that that thing has been running. My math may be a little bit off, but you get what I'm saying. Like, those guys together have racked up a significant amount of wins over the, the past 68 years at the, uh, you like this sound? You like the sound of those notes? You know, I, you know, I use real notes. I just decimate trees here at the Creative Writing Podcast. I love writing. You go back to episode thirteen, which is handwriting, handkerchiefs, and hand signals, and you'll you'll know what I'm talking about. I don't want writing to go away. 
So at any rate, when it came down to it, Wiles just totally dominated. He won his uh, his heat, and I think they had a semi. Did they have a semi? Boner Joe! I can't remember if they had a semi or not. But anyway, he won his heat races. I mean, it was just incredible watching this guy fly around there. Everybody was saying in the in the heat races how terrible the track was, just how filthy and awful. It seemed like it was because it was dusty and dry. Everybody said, keep getting some moisture, keep getting some moisture. But from what I heard later, it's maybe because of some chemical that they use on the track to soften up the dirt and, and prep it so that it's not sandy and rough. Actually, when they did get some rain the night before, it might have made like a little wet spot down in one of the turns. If you watched the race, you know what I'm talking about. If you didn't watch the race, I'm sorry that I told you that uh, who the winner was. But at any rate, go check it out. There's like a bunch of speed bumps. Um, and they are, I think they called them stutter bumps. There was just like a little bit of a, a whoop section. And part of it's due to the travel that these bikes have. Now, they used to race framers there. They used to race 250 framers, then 350, 500, then 750s uh, way back in the day. And they're actually moving to big bikes. There's not going to be any more singles next year for the GNC1 class. So they're going to be racing on the 750 twins. I like it. I really do like it. And I've heard, I, you know, from, I just, I don't know why, but I think that it would be great. And it's just because the, the racing is going to be different. They might be doing going a little slower and maybe not jumping as far. I've heard people saying that they might tweak the track there. And that's specific to the TTs because to be honest, I mean, it does make a difference whether you're hucking a big old twin around a short track and they might drop back to, you know, 500s or something like that if they do short track framers. I'm not 100% sure. They probably won't. But when you're hucking a big old bike like that with no suspension travel and, and the specialty frame where the, uh, you know, basically on the, the dirt bikes that they're using to jump right now, the 450s, they really only had to modify the suspension slightly and those bikes are built to take it. So, I mean, yeah. And at any rate, if you watched the, the race this weekend, you saw that there was a berm that formed and the fast guys were hitting the berm and just taking it. And the more and more they went through it, obviously the more and more it built up. And like I said, people were talking about how horrible and uh, I thought they were complaining about how dry the track was. But when you saw down in that corner, that berm, it must have been a pretty, a little bit mushy because that was the, the corner that I'm assuming had all the water in it and and uh, made, maybe made a wet spot and allowed that berm to get made. And as these bikes are going around it, uh, on the regular bikes, there's not that much suspension travel, but the dirt bikes have a little bit. And so when you when you start to hit a bump and your tire starts to bounce, that will make these ruts. And it'll, it'll make like what you might call whoop-de-doos, although not gigantic whoop-de-doos uh, like you're used to, but little whoops like a little wa- like you uh, see in like a nat- natural washout on a dirt road or something like that where they're super close together. So watching the fast guys come through there, they would bounce around and then just fly out. And it was really interesting to watch because it's not something you typically see on the bigger bikes. So I'm excited that they're going to big bikes next year. I hope they still take them there. I hope the riders don't complain too much. They were giving them sighting laps so that they could check it out. Everybody wanted to make sure that it was nice and safe. And in the end, there were quite a few red flags. 
I want to say there was three, but maybe there was only two. I it's so funny. I just watched this, but I already forgot how many there were. Just be the fans' choice feed that I watched. Like I said, it was it was not uh, all live on one day. I went back and rewatched, so I can't remember exactly how many red flags there were. But it's interesting to see. You know, during the red flag situation, you're you're basically live with them, so you're just sitting there through it all, uh, watching everybody try to stay cool. It looked like it must have been really hot and humid there in Peoria, and it's in Illinois, so I imagine this. This time of year, it is pretty warm, and basically, uh, you know that that race was just was an amazing race. Like I said, a couple red flags, but it came out this way. Henry Wiles dominated with like a nine and a half second lead over Jared Meese. Uh, we saw Brian Smith crash out. I think Halbert was up there at first, and he if he didn't crash out, he went he dropped back. Uh, Brad Baker, see, I can't remember if this happened in the heat or the. F- or the uh, yeah, this happened five laps in to the main. Brad Baker after the jump going into what they call the S there because it's like you're you're turning right before you hit the left again to go back onto the main track. He lost the bars and he just he never regained the bar and he just f- flew like right over the front end into the air fence and that was a pretty scary crash that happened uh, on the fifth or sixth lap and I, I or on, must have been on the sixth lap because after five laps you don't get to um, go back and get your alternate bike. So what happened was he had to use that bike if he was going to use it. So he was out for the day, and it, he went and stuck his hand in a big old trash can. I think it was full of ice. It's probably where he had his beverages and stuff. And I'm sure that he hurt his hand because he was kind of shaking that thing. And that crash was pretty hardcore, watching him go over uh, basically – riding up on the front on the tank and leaning over the bars without being able to control it with his hands it must have been pretty scary too you can't put your hand down there's no you know you're still moving forward the bike's still going and that head shake was just so violent that it just yanked the bars out of both hands literally within like a, a split second so he was in contention there until he crashed out and uh, like i said brian smith was doing pretty well and i can't remember where halbert he, he where, where he was i think he might have crashed uh, out too but um, or crashed and got back up and came back in later. But the guy, you know, you didn't see any of the the people that were running out there and at first come, you know, except for Henry Wiles. He he had the the whole shot pretty much both times. Uh, the other people that came in, Jared Meese came in uh, second. And Jake Johnson came in third. So that was a really interesting interesting podium. And I forget exactly what happened when Jake Johnson, somebody crashed there and Jake came around him, I think, on the last few laps and, and stayed in third. So that was a, it was just an interesting, even though Henry Wiles is out front the whole time, the battles behind him were just incredible. That's right. Uh, yeah, Halbert didn't crash out, but he was, I think, in seventh. And when Henry Wiles took the checkered flag, he had lapped everyone. He had <laughs> lapped the field up to seventh because I think he had just lapped Sammy Halbert uh, when he took the checkered. So, yeah, Meese by nine, and then Meese's gap back to Jake Johnson was was quite huge too. So it was just an a amazing, amazing feat for Henry Wiles to do that. Last year he went and you know, busted out 25 push-ups after he crossed the finish line to prove that he still had more to go. Cause that, that's a brutal track for those guys having the jump and you know, all the dangers and especially this year with that crazy berm and all those bumps and the conditions. So, uh, moving on to GNC two, that race was also incredible and the heat races for that as well. Uh, Jesse Yanish took his, 
uh, I think he won his heat race. Uh, we had Hayden Gillum. If you've been, uh, if you're a subscriber of Cycle World or you follow them online, he's been doing the Man in the Van with a Plan for quite a while now. It's an awesome series where he, you know, he's basically a road racer and he just throws his bike in his van and he's. Tr- picked out his races that he's going to do this year and they drive around and hit the events and he is the man in the van with the plan. He's been doing pretty good. Uh, he took his, like I said, he took his heat race, I believe. And I believe Jesse Yenish took his. And then when it came down to the final, they were battling head to head there. I cannot remember if that race had a red flag. I want to say that one had a red flag too. I, I can't remember hundred percent. I think 51 crashed out, which was Cole Zabala and uh, he was doing pretty well as as well, and he might have been the one that crashed out and caused the red flag for that race. I cannot remember 100%, but um, basically, it was just interesting because when they came, uh, yeah, so the crash by Cole Zabala caused a red flag, and when they went back to green, uh, Andrew Luker had come in and settled into second, and then Luker and Gillum just slugged it out uh, for the rest of the race and on and Luker was making some progress and on the last lap he actually took the lead and then right after the jump Hayden Gillum come in on the inside and kind of cut him and then down the the front stretch he kind of did a block pass on him and he only won by point zero one two seconds that's like twelve hundredths of a second right I mean that was it was an incredible it was near photo finish so that was a great race the GNC2 similar to like Moto2 and GP and all that stuff it's just the that's where the crazy racing happens there's nobody that just runs away with the field those guys are so competitive and evenly matched so the GNC2 uh came out with Hayden Gillum on top uh Andrew Luker pull in a second and Jesse Yanish coming in third uh, after a little bit of a bobble to let Andrew Luker get by. So, and honestly, I didn't even know uh, Andrew Luker that well until I went to the TT last year and I met a group of people that were there supporting him. And so then I really realized this kid is, you know, he's got a, a pretty good fan base for somebody that's not like a household name yet. So that was pretty cool and pretty interesting. If you get a chance, go back and watch the TT. It's one of the best flat track races. I love flat track. I, I, I don't know why. I hate NASCAR. I love flat track. And speaking of, you know, I watched it on fanschoice.tv. Great, great, great free streaming service. And if you like NASCAR, uh, go go there. They have a lot of automotive stuff. The flat track is the only thing that they have motorcycle related. And they used to have Moto America until that went to BN Sports and all that stuff. But regardless... I was watching, you know, just for the heck of it, I thought I'll check out the other stuff on here. They have IMSA on there, which is really cool. And they have a lot of, they have this thing called Euro. Well, they had NASCAR Euro. And I was watching the Euro NASCAR. And here in the States, NASCAR is all ovals, you know, tri-oval. I don't care what you call it. It's a circle, basically. High-speed rings. And there's one or two road courses. I haven't followed NASCAR for a bajillion years because I've always thought it was a little bit boring uh, to, to not be there in person at a speedway. And I remember that they used to have Sears Point and Lime Rock or something like that was the only two road courses. And they'd always get road course specialists to come here and all that stuff. Well, Euro NASCAR is, I would say, almost 100% different where they have 
three or four ovals, and the rest of them are road courses. And we're talking road courses that MotoGP races on, and Moto, uh, you know, stuff that um, like Formula One races on, and stuff like that. And some pretty crazy, small, small short track ovals. So it's it's pretty intense, and it was pretty crazy to see that. And when I was watching the the race at Brands Hatch, they were showing they had America. I think forget they call it like America Fest or something like that. And it's just crazy to see Europe embracing this American culture and kind of having like a county country fair or county fair sort of thing at these events, having BMX, having all sorts of weird American food and like American flags flying. So when this NASCAR tour goes around, they kind of use it as a way to like promote uh, American tradition or something like that over in Europe. So it was really interesting. And to me, it, it was really cool because we certainly don't have anything like that over here, where, which is a little bit ironic because Europe is like where the motorsport started. You know what I mean? It's like the, the birthplace, the birth of the cradle of motorsports uh, and all that great stuff. So it's kind of weird that they have this whole thing that celebrates uh, NASCAR and then they don't even drive ovals for the majority of the races but anyway go check all that stuff out on fanschoice.tv everybody so i want to talk to you about something right now that happened back in uh 1796 1796 you say oh yeah 1796 i just said and then you're like, what, 1796? Thinking about all these things I told you about the Industrial Revolution a few episodes ago and like when motorcycles were first invented. And you're like, dude, he can't be talking about 1796. He means 1896. <laughs> no, no. April 14th, 1796. In France, a little boy named Benny was born. Benny. Yeah. And uh, this French-born officer came over to the United States later in life. He was a fur trapper. He was in the Army. He explored the American West. He did a bunch of expeditions into the west of uh, Utah, Oregon. I'm guessing Colorado. I'm just going to guess a bunch of places. Uh, that's how history works, right? We, we don't really know. We guess based on evidence. I'm going to guess that this guy had three legs while I'm at it. Might as well, right? So anyway, he was born near Paris uh, to Nicholas, uh, well, I want you to tell you his dad's name. That'll spoil it. Uh, but Marguerite Brazier. And uh, Brazier is not as in a bra, but probably a brazier is something that you braise stuff in. It's like a bowl, like a fire bowl. So uh, let's not get off topic. Shall we? What are you guys doing? You're making me get all crazy here. Let's, let's get back back to the story, okay? So come on, man. 1796. This kid was born in Paris, comes on over here explores uh the united states uh basically you know moved from new england down to south and then started heading west and blazed some trails dude he blazed some trails through the u.s bro this french guy you know a lot of french guys blaze trails well when uh some geologists later found a a wide expanse in tuele county it wasn't called that yet i mean let's let's back up a little bit in utah they found a this gigantic, gigantic part of this uh, Pleistocene uh, era lake, right in in a portion of Utah, and so they named part of that lake Bonneville after Benjamin Bonneville. 
And it's not really actually a lake. It's, like I said, the vestige of what used to be a huge Pleistocene, uh, Pleistocene era lake. I want to get that right because I don't want any of the geologists that listen to this show freaking out. So anyway, yeah, uh, what it is, it's the salt flat. And the only thing that the Great Salt Lake is good for anymore, you don't want to catch any fish out of that thing because they'd be so salty. I mean, when you hear of a salted herring, you probably just... Uh, get one out of the Great Salt Lake and it's already salted. Hey, why did why was the fish in the Great Salt Lake all bruised? Because he was assaulted. Oh yeah, I just made that up on the fly. So anyway, yeah, so this, this Great Salt Flat was named after a Benjamin Bonneville who was, you know, a French dude that explored the west part of the United States and made a big impact on people, I, I guess enough to where they wanted to name this place after him. Now, I was thinking about this recently because on the last episode, I talked about how Triumph just set their, well, Triumph's world record for speed there with some dude named Guy Martin, another French guy, right? (laughs) Or maybe he's, uh, I don't know where Guy Martin's from, but anyway. So, yeah, I was thinking about everything that has to do with Bonneville and everything. I was listening to, uh, of course, Motorcycles and Misfits podcast, and they were talking about Michelle DeSalvo racing Pikes Peak. And I thought about when I first started watching the Pikes Peak International Hill Climb, all the crazy cars that used to race it and the way they used to look. Now, that's because they need downforce. They needed things to put like 2,000 pounds per square inch on the car because they were racing on mostly dirt at the time. Then they paved it halfway up uh, in like the... mm, I forget exactly what year they paved it. I want to say like 2004 or 2005, but it only went like halfway. And then in 2011, they paved it all the way to the top to where it ends at the dirt parking lot at the top. I mean, they didn't literally pave the top of the mountain, but they paved the road all the way up to the top. And uh, that happened in 2011. So, I mean, I watched the race evolve and the cars that used to race up there, like the Suzuki Escudo or whatever the hell that thing was called, that just looked like a gigantic wing with like these gigantic tires and gigantic horsepower to what now is just like, you know, road race stuff. It's pretty interesting to see how things evolved. Um, Listening to people talk about the TT going back to Peoria, like I was just talking about a few minutes ago and how they're going to be racing large framers there again. And people maybe want to modify it slightly to make it more safe just because of, uh, you know, racing on a 450 is one thing, racing on a on a twin in a frame, you know, frame chassis is another. So tweaking it for this and that. We've also heard about things like uh, the MotoGP racing on F1 tracks, where on F1, if you run off course, you might want a little bit of pavement so that you can regain some traction and you can get back on the course. Uh, But in MotoGP, you want a lot of gravel so that when you hit that, you slow down and stop. You're not sliding into a wall. Your bike is not sliding into the wall. You want to stop the rider. So... Certain things change over the course of racing, and we need tweaks for safety here and safety there. And when I heard about the the death at Bonneville recently, that really bummed me out. And then I heard about this Triumph, literally by the Triumph Motorcycle Company, and breaking their record. I th- you know, that made me happy again about it. And I, I thought that Bonneville is one of these places since the Pleistocene era that has not changed. Now, the only time they won't race at Bonneville, like the last two years, I think it's been rained out. The salt was not uh, worthy of racing on. It it can be dangerous, but Bonneville isn't one of those places where you can change a turn. Uh, 
Bonneville isn't one of those places where you can add more runoff or, you know, kind of like straighten out a corner and like you can with the road course or even like Pikes Peak where you don't change anything except the surface of the road. You pave it all the way up. So I was just thinking about how Bonneville is one of those, you know, it's weird that it's not quite like drag racing. You've got like, you know, I think the the, the course is like something like three miles, I want to say, and they time you for a mile of it. And it's literally, you know, just top speed. And so it's just amazing what people can do out there. And when I was thinking of Bonneville and thinking of the the efforts that people make every year to go out there, it's one of those weird things that you got to see in your life. Just because it's weird that it's exciting to watch people go in a straight line for miles. Because the thing is, is that the challenges that come with racing on a surface that hasn't changed for thousands, hundreds, at least 20 years, right? The Pleistocene era was, I'm thinking like 20, 30, 40 years ago. But all jokes aside, you know what I'm saying? Like the surface hasn't changed and 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 only time can change Bonneville salt flats is, is basically what I'm getting at. So w- at first I wasn't that impressed by the Rocket 3 just because it wasn't a Bonneville. It would have been cool if they did it with like triple Bonneville engines in line or something like that since they have a bike called the Bonneville. But then I started thinking about it and I've actually watched like a ton of documentaries and like shows on Bonneville and how cool it is out there and the people are so nice and like the triumph, the personal triumphs that people make. Um, producer Steve Michelle Mankiewicz actually turned me on to a blind racer that goes out there and use like haptic. Uh, if he starts to get offline a little bit, a tone will go off to tell him to turn right or left so that he stays pretty much straight. But he's out there cruising blind, totally blind on a like a, this crazy purpose built 125 cc two stroke looking thing, just flying down, you know, doing like 60 or 70 miles an hour, totally blind through Bonneville. So it's just one of those crazy places where crazy things happen and it's not going to change. It's not going to change unless uh, mother nature says it will. And for the last two years it has. So it's really exciting to see what's going to happen this year at Bonneville. And from what I can see, the very first race, of course, when somebody finds like an open area, they want to drive on it, right? Whether it's sand or salt or snow or anything, people just love to challenge a vehicle. And in 1914, the first uh, land speed record was set by Teddy Tetzlaff there. Um, In 1907, the first people started, you know, two local businessmen apparently tried to drive on it to see how you know, how well it would work, or maybe, maybe they just wanted to see what it was like to drive on salt and they took a Pierce arrow out there. So it didn't take very long. Seven years later, they're setting records on it and stuff. So yeah, just thinking about this week and in the news and what's happening and Bonneville, man, it's one of those places that I have yet to see stock is for squares guys went there. So check out, uh, their show and listen, look at their video, listen to their words and uh, peer into their eyes and see if you can divulge anything that they've seen over the eons of... Dude, the mushrooms are kicking in. We're ki- we're cutting you off. All right, welcome to Thursday's Ride Report. I want to talk about riding. <laughs> is, that, is that weird to talk about on the Ride Report? So yeah, today I went out for a little bitty ride and millions of bikes out on the road today. It's wonderful to see so many people out enjoying this incredibly hot weather we've been having. And actually today wasn't terrible. I mean, it hasn't been, it's been hot. I won't lie, but it hasn't been like unbearably hot. What 
<clears throat> Daddy did something today. Daddy ripped his glove. So Daddy needs to get a new glove. And while I'm at it, I'm probably going to get a new helmet. My helmet is uh, seen better days. And it's, you know, a few years old. That don't, that doesn't really mean anything. But it's starting to starting to age a little bit. And uh, my gigantic Guy Martin fake lamb chops that I wear every day, you know, they're adhesive and I just stick them on. But when I wear my helmet, it tears up the inside pads where they rub my cheek. So if Guy Martin didn't make them out of real Wolverine hair, I think that would have not been an issue. But since he did, um, my Guy Martin imitation lamb chops are tearing at my helmet. The bottom rubber rings coming off it, man, I'm not going to take it anymore. I'm going to get a new one. And now that I ripped my gloves, I just got to go shopping. So I might tell you what I'm going to get. But yeah, it was really cool. I was cruising with the dude on a V-Star 1300 today. And that was pretty cool. He was blaring like Michael Jackson, big old burly dude, blaring Michael Jackson out of the radio and that thing. And it was just, it was cool kind of hooking up with somebody to ride. Total stranger, you know, just rode up. He pointed to the lane next to him, like, get that little tiny Yamaha in here next to my big old burly Yamaha and we'll cruise, bro. So we did. It was really nice. And um, I really like that when you, when you, meet with another uh, motorcyclist and they're like hey yeah cool you know when i went out to check the fish uh canyon i talked about a couple days ago uh or or well to you a few minutes ago and um basically on that day i rolled up on a dude with the bonneville and he was like hmm what's that little crummy motorcycle you got and he totally took off you know had to show me all 750 cc's of that uh that thing could do and then i was coming back dude on fz09 was like giving me the thumbs up and i was like yeah bro because i was riding behind him and he saw my bike in his mirror and he had to do a double take and was like that's the best bike i've ever seen in the whole world thumbs up but it is really nice to see people out riding in this weather and just to like randomly hook up with people when you're riding get the thumbs up get the nod and cruise together for a few blocks it's all about camaraderie baby it's all about camaraderie it's that it's that uh, biker income that i was talking about on the last episode too so other things i want to talk about this week is uh I, you know, I spoke about flat track racing and all that stuff. And I know I've spoke about hooligan class before a lot. You know, it's like all I've been talking about lately because it's like getting balls deep in the season. I saw a Wiener Schnitzel ad the other day. And of all things, there was like a group, like four, three or four hooligan bikes in it just for a split second. And I didn't even, couldn't even, I can't find it online. I, didn't even register at first like hey, oh my god that's, that's, that's hooligan bikes and then i didn't see who was on them i just saw like the number plates and everything and i was like dude i think it might have been roland sands actually i think there was a number 10 i think that's might be roland sands's bike so maybe he's been in a wiener schnitzel commercial i'm sure it wouldn't be his first bro i <laughs> get it like a wiener on a bike oh never mind uh anyway now the last thing i want to get into well, there's a couple more things. Let me get into like these little tiny news blurbs. And this isn't going to be a full news section like I used to do with Honey because God rest her soul. Well, she's not dead, guys. Don't worry. She's not dead. But she just doesn't do our news anymore. Uh, so, you know, she would do full on great, great stories and great write-ups. I'm just going to do a little quick blurb. So listen here. Listen up. All you Honda owners. Honda recalling the CBR 300R and 300F. Why are they recalling these things? Well, listen up. They had improperly machined crankshafts, and I guess that the connecting rod bearing retainer or something like that is like, you know, can cause a failure and it'll seize up and or, or stall, one of the two. I, I don't know exactly what the outcome will be, but when you, if you go in, they will replace your crankshaft free of charge. I don't know how many of these units they've sold. 
I wasn't looking on NHTSA's website or anything. I just saw it in a news blurb. So I'm not 100% about that. But what I can tell you is that it's not going to be cheap to tear your motor down to Crankshaftsville and then having to replace or, like, you know, remove and install all seven connecting rods on that thing. It's just going to be a pain in the bootay. So that's one thing. Uh, something else I read. All of these c- come from Cycle News, by the way. Check out CycleNews.com. Really good publication. Uh, I read in there that the, the uh, Norton, the 1200 V4, I think I'm, I might not have mentioned this, but I published something on creative-writing.com a few months back about the Norton R1200 V4, like super bike that they've been working on now for quite a while. And uh, I see that they might have a supercharged 600 parallel twin spinoff coming from that. And that would put them in, you know, the realm with Kawasaki as one of the only manufacturers that's got a supercharged bike out now. Uh, But basically a supercharged 600 twin. I mean, if they allowed that to race flat track or if they allowed that into like a super stock or a super sport class that's apparently going to be dying if you believe the Honda rumors. But anyway, could you imagine like a supercharged 600 twin? That'd just be, that's crazy. That's, that's awesome. And something else I, I noted was uh, the, the late Dane Westby, his, his girlfriend or probably former girlfriend now, Patricia Fernandez unlocked a medal <laughs> Uh, for all you game nerds out there, she she got a medal for being the world's fastest female at the Ulster GP, and she did. Let's see, she rode her R six to one hundred and eighteen point two six miles per hour, and that is freaking incredible. I think also I had read on Cycle News earlier this week that uh, Ian Hutchinson maybe had become the world's fastest man. And Ulster is the world's fastest road race. They claim, you know, faster than Macau, faster than the Isle of Man, faster than the Northwest 200, if you can believe it. Uh, Although the Ulster Grand Prix and the Northwest 200 share the same country, I think they are totally different races. Um, but anyway, yeah, he went like a hundred and forty-four bajillion miles an hour, I think it was something like that. And so, yeah, you have to read Cycle News to get it because I think that it was on there too. It was under the Metzler uh, Metzler Tires released a that was their press release was that he won like four out of the five races for the, for that GP and uh, basically did it on their road like dot legal or you know something like their road street legal road race tire so that is pretty incredible man that's some pretty incredible news all right well the last thing i want to talk about before i get to the really important stuff is our workspace now i want to do like a diy tip every every week starting now starting this week a little diy tip that might get you into like customizing, fabricating, getting better at whatever your creative side is that, you know, this whole thing, creative writing podcast is supposed to be about creative writers and the creative stuff that we do on the side. And sometimes I don't get to that. And I'm, I really need to touch base back with the origins of, you know, the show, the impetus of why I even wanted to start this. And DIY is where it all started, baby. This is like a DIY podcast, not, not about how to do DIY stuff, but started by yours truly in my garage, literally. And, um, everything I've, I've done has been DIY to my own vehicles pretty much. And, uh, to this podcast as well. So I thought, man, what a great thing. Why don't I do this? Why don't I give like a little thing each week of, you know, 
starting out. Let's start from scratch and work our way up to like magnificent, right? So this week is going to be a workspace. Whether you're building a bike, whether you're, you know, learning a new trade or skill, whether you, uh, let's see, be it programming, uh, be it like photography, painting, whatever the hell you're doing, welding, you need someplace to do all that stuff. Now, I remember when I used to live in an apartment and it sucked and I was tearing apart a Datsun 510 motor. I had to do that. You know, luckily I was a bachelor at the time because this is not the sort of stuff you do unless you have a really understanding spouse. But, uh, you know, I tore that thing apart in my bedroom on paper and uh, didn't want to, I had a roommate, so I didn't want to use the living room and the kitchen sink like a lot of people do. But, uh, you know, if I had my own house, that's probably what I would use as my parts washer would be my kitchen sink. And uh, my powder coater would be the oven probably, you know, a whole bunch of great stuff you could do. But if you just, if you don't have a garage and if you don't have, um, or if you have a small space, like right now my garage is not fully dedicated to my motorcycles and tools like it used to be. I have a small corner of it now. And uh, so basically you need a little space. And like I said, I worked, I, I pulled a motor apart and put it back together in my bedroom for Pete's sake on like a little end table and newspaper uh, to keep from oil from going on the carpet. You know what I mean? Like this is how DIY I was back in the day. So um, if you if you don't really have a workspace, it's not very hard to set one up. All you need is, uh, heck, a TV tray, one of those lap trays that can sit across your lap. Um, if you're learning to weld or you're learning to metal work and stuff like that, I've done this in some very crowded spaces and all you need I started out with some of my own tools and I really only need in your garage or if you're doing this in your house and you're trying to do metalworking and stuff, it's going to be a little bit more difficult, but all you need is start out with a little bench. If you're in the garage, get a nice workbench or go do it old school like the, like the uh, original guys used to do and go online. Um, you, they're, they're not around anymore, but there was this publication called Lindsay's Publications, and I used to go just buy ma- manuals from those guys, like left and right. They had the best stuff, and it would teach you how to build a workbench. Then it would teach you how to build parts of a lathe. Then it would teach you or how to forge a lathe, and then it would teach you how to use those parts that you had forged, and it would teach you how to build the forge. Um, now use those parts to finish building the lathe. And they had this whole project series of books. It was really, really crazy stuff from like the old, old, old ways. So it's really cool to be able to get it now um, and and do some of the stuff that people have been doing for like, you know, over the past few decades that you just go and buy a cheap Chinese version of now, you know, go do it from scratch. So you can, you can literally do that. You can literally start from scratch in your bedroom if you want and move eventually, you know, over the time, I'm sure you will amass someplace to do this stuff. So a workspace doesn't have to be a huge, huge shop, you know, and I used to work in a shop and it was so great to have welders and torches and lifts and racks and, you know, all. So if one guy didn't have some sort of specialty tool, somebody else would. And we had like, anything you could think of, you know what I mean? And even fluids and all that stuff. So, you know, bolts, like huge drawer room full of bolts. I used to just go in there and there's, you know, God, there had to been like 500 drawers full of hardware. So incredible stuff like that all the way to like, oh no, I don't work at a shop anymore. Now I'm back in my garage. What do I do? And, you know, 
getting back to where you should start is your platform, right? So if you're if you're in your bedroom or if you're in your house, if you don't have room for a little desk, um, like I'm saying, lap tray, TV stand, that can be your basis. I mean, it'd be it's amazing what you can do. I rebuilt a motor on a freaking like a nightstand, so. Uh, it doesn't have to be a huge, big space, especially if you're drawing or you're an artist or you're a photographer. You don't need to, you don't need a bunch of space. If you're an illustrator and you have a place for your laptop and your mouse, that's cool. If you're making like leather stuff and you have some place to pound on, hell, even your dining room table, that's enough, right? And so me, I started out, I bought um, a galvanized table from my uncle who was like, hey, man, I've had this in my workshop forever. I finally got a place to, to work and I, I didn't have a table for the longest time. And once I got that, oh man, it made the world of difference. Uh, immediately after I got a table... Um, I started looking at how to fasten stuff to it. Right. And so basically, uh, this thing's seen several iterations, but I've made my own tools and I went, like I'm saying, I went back to these old publications of how guys used to do stuff before you could just go buy this crap for like thousands of dollars. How did people used to do accurate, precise work, metal work specifically back with what they had back in the day, especially like during the war times when like, metals were precious, right? A lot of times you could do it with wood and I'm really into metal shaping and English wheels. You know, there's, there's nothing better than an English wheel. You can get fancy stuff like tuckers and shrinkers and this and that, but wood, man, all sorts of pipe benders cost a heck of a lot of money. If you get the, the Ram kind that has like hydraulic press, if you get the ratchet kind where you need a big giant gorilla cheater bar and you're like weight to bend it around, both are very accurate, but you need these dies for the pipe to fit in or it'll kink. You know, pipe and tubing are two different things, actually. Pipe usually doesn't kink, and it's a lot easier to bend, but it's not as structurally as rigid sometimes as tubing. And tubing is very different because of the way they measure uh, the inner and outer diameters and stuff like that and tubing wall thickness and then you know matching a die up to that has to match perfectly because you can't kink it you know what i mean if you if you try to do it a certain way i've heard people putting sand and springs and all this stuff in it to keep it from kinking when they didn't have an exact fit and you know who who wants to do all that go out and and research stuff like i did uh i saw that in the old days they used to take wood and they used to put wood on the lathe or a turner anything to turn it and turn the diameter of the uh the metal that they're trying to get and then they'd sandwich it between two metal plates and run a bolt through the middle and that's your die right there you have a 360 degree die rather than just like you know a 80 degree or 180 degree whatever a lot of dies are that come with ratchet sets same thing with old metal workers they would get a pipe and they would weld it to an old wheel so it's sticking straight up and then on top of that they would weld another pipe so basically you've made a t now why do you weld a pipe on top of that well you weld that on there so that you um can form really tight curves over that pipe now you've got a, a long tube. You can make, you know, take sheet and, and make a, a U out of it or bend an edge if you're trying to make a lip or like a roll pan or something for your truck. Um, you can also make it so that you can take that pipe in and out of the wheel 
or at least the top of it, make an attachment for the top, and you can slide your T-top off and put like a, a dome on there. And now you can make gas tanks. You can make fenders, you know, depending on the shape of your dome. You can also do what I did and go to Harbor Freight and get the world's crappiest Chinese um, English wheel and tune it. I had to tune that thing like crazy. That It's just such a piece of junk. Um, the tolerances are terrible. The the It's sloppy. I'm not even 100% sure what the parts are called on it, but the arm that comes up um, from the bottom, you know, slap me in the face, all you metal workers. I'm, anyway, I won't get, I won't jump down a rabbit hole. I'll just tell you, I don't know what all the parts are called on it, but I had to like shim it up and tune it and like even kind of re-weld and refit part of it to make it so that it didn't wobble all over because that makes your metal uneven and track the wheel track weird and all this stuff. So, you know, start start with what you have, start with what you can afford, start with the space that you have available to you and just work up from there. And a workspace doesn't have to be, like I said, an elaborate garage with a lift and a huge table. It can be like I did, starting it out on a nightstand, eventually getting a table, and then just making everything you have. Um, I've made sheet metal brakes just out of scrap metal that I had around, and they worked fabulous. Sometimes they worked better than um, brakes that you can buy, especially if you go to Harbor Freight. Don't ever buy anything from Harbor Freight unless you're just going to use it once or you're in in an emergency. I mean, you can buy zip ties probably from there and rubber gloves, but you know, sandpaper stuff like that is okay. But if you're buying a tool, dude, don't, I mean, one and done from Harbor Freight, they're so terrible. Um, and you get what you pay for. So maybe if you go there and you pay for one of the higher end tools and they turn out to actually be worth it, then fine. But you can always make stuff. I've made, um, a dish, you, you know, the hardest thing to make, I guess, is bags for forming metal because of the different stuff that you have to put in. It has to take impact without destroying the, the surface of your metal, but without also crumbling inside the bag. So sandbags are always good, but then you, you know, they're called sandbags because they have like some sort of, um, substrate in them like sand where you can form on it and it's not, you know, sand's not going to bend or break. So, but they also could have beans or something in them, but after a while that would probably crush up. I'm not hundred percent sure what they put in them. I think they put some synthetic stuff in this, but anyway, you can use bags, um, dishes. I made a wooden dish with my skill saw and it turned out really good. And, uh, that's for forming compound curves. So, I mean, it's just, it's amazing what you can make out of scrap wood and scrap metal laying around your garage. If you have that available to you, if you're doing stuff like leather work or screen printing t-shirts, you don't need to, but you know, you can do that also on a desk or on your kitchen table or something like that. Um, you know, you can make these little tiny things. There's, there's lots of resources out there. I'm going to give you a couple right now that helped me make some pretty, take some janky stuff and make some pretty rad tools. Uh, Izzy Swan. Um, if you look up Izzy Swan on YouTube or think woodworks as he's been going by recently, he puts out informative videos all the time. He makes a bunch of crazy stuff, but a couple years ago when I started following, he started this project called the $5 garage or something like that. And he promised to not use tools over $5. And he took, and he made a whole garage out of it. And uh, and he took like a, a saw that he got at the swap meet, used that to cut up some wood and made a table saw. And then took that table saw and made a bunch of stuff, you know, and, and then 
use those tools to make new things and then bought a screwdriver electric screwdriver from the swap meet for five bucks use that to do all the stuff drills made pocket hole you know things so it, it all it really does start with what you have available to work and then go from there there's another guy called bob on i like to make stuff and that's also a youtube channel and he also does really cool stuff. And go back and look at the old stuff that these guys did. Because this nowadays, these guys have like have been making an income off of YouTube, been making budgets, um, have lots of crazy, crazy tools and big workshops. But go back to like their first videos, and you'll see that they started out with like five tools, and basically went from there. And it's really cool to see what they did with kind of small workspaces and now they've got like a whole garage full of stuff because they made it and so that's my that's my thing that's exactly what i did and now i'm i'm okay at um everything i do i'm a little bit good jack of all trades definitely master of none but you know i got enough space laid out for metalworking a little bit of woodworking to make stuff mostly out of metal or you know if, if i want to make stuff out of wood i can and i got all of it pretty much by making what I needed myself and then, you know, just buying the basics and starting out with a small table and that's all it took. And that's really all I still have today. I mean, I still have a, I have a couple rolling tables in this and that, but that one table that I had made the whole difference and that's uh, what started it all. So that's my DIY tip for this week. It's probably taken me what, 25 minutes to talk about one stinking table and where to start, but you know, Hopefully next week we'll have another good tip. And if you guys have any good tips, feel free to email them to the show, creative writing podcast at gmail.com or hit us up on Facebook and give us your idea. All right. Hey, guys, before I get on to the last and most important segment of the show, I wanted to tell you uh, I've been receiving a lot of emails lately, a lot of emails regarding last episode. I'm glad you liked that episode. Took a lot of research to put into that. Um, And I'm sorry it came out late. There was a last week and this week have been totally crazy. Um, And so I got a lot of feedback, uh, a lot of people saying thanks for the shout out. I got about five emails saying thanks for the shout out. I think it's the part where I mentioned a listener and and connecting with the listener on here which means that hey man i'm connecting with a lot of you i'm not going to tell you exactly who i meant if uh if it's going to offend you sure i meant you but yeah thanks for all the feedback um one thing i did want to say is that i also received a lot of cool emails about stuff that people are watching and reading and stuff like that well two cool emails at least the first one comes from listener Paul, and he is watching 21 Days Under the Sun. And I think that was a documentary. Well, he says it's about four dudes crossing the U.S. Um, on old school choppers. And I think that one recently came out. Uh, I think that's from 20, I'm going to say 2014, um, because I think it came out last year. Maybe maybe it's 2015 and it came out this year. But anyway, yeah, I've heard mixed stuff about that one. But yeah, I would definitely watch that one versus, you know, the one that came out that everyone ripped on, um, a movie worth not watching. And also, uh, listener Sam, you might have heard me talking about the Santa Bluetooth a couple episodes ago. Uh, he told me that uh, Reardon Metal was an 
came out um, and Atlas Shrugged. And I've never read that book. I've heard it's pretty incredible. But that got me thinking about movies that you've watched or things that you've seen and uh, books that you've read, whether they're motorcycle related or not. And something that I have read that's a pretty incredible book uh, is Blood Meridian. And it's kind of incredible because the way that it's written, Cormac McCarthy takes you, well, at least takes me visually. Like, I feel like I'm there when I'm hearing him talk about this stuff. And he talks about the, so it's, 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 okay, it's fictional, but it's based on real events. And it takes place in a part of the, you know, a real part of the world and stuff like that. It's not like sci-fi or anything like that. But it's like, it's sort of like the Da Vinci Code, where it's like a, a, a history based fiction, but it is, it is based on true events, though. Uh, but obviously, since, you know, he wasn't there with the documentary crew recording what went on, he has to fill in the blanks. And it's an amazing book. So if you get a chance, read Blood Meridian, it'll make you uh, it kind of gives, reminds me of the, the feeling you get when you're doing like an adventure bike trip or a camping trip, uh, through the Southwest. That's kind of how it feels. So the book will take you there. It's, it's pretty amazing journey and it'll probably make you want to go out and ride for like five days through the desert. It's pretty, pretty cool. Uh, and then movies, let's check out, check out Paul's movie, 21 days in the sun. Um, so there's that. Now, the most important thing I want to get to this week is, uh, Last week, one of our field producers, Steve Maknowitz, was very generous and sent us a video from the WIR Top 10 RSD that went down at Kakana International Raceway. Now, I spent last weekend in jail, so I was not able to upload it, but this week I've got it loaded and ready to go. And what's more important is because they're taking a field trip to the Grove this weekend, and uh, they're going to be heading down to, I believe it's called... The Grove, Wisconsin? Maybe Grovetown? Groverville? I'm just kidding, guys. It's it's a Union Grove, Wisconsin. The Great Lakes Dragway. I really didn't know. I had to look it up. <laughs> so, you know, preparedness. Woo, that's me in a nutshell. So, anyway, yeah. I want to give you uh, Michelle, you know, watching last week's um, antics unfold and watch everybody move up and down throughout the board, uh, their little chalkboard that they got going on. Uh, I got kind of informed. I wasn't a hundred percent sure how it worked until we had that interview with her and Chris. And now I kind of get it. And it's so much fun watching that stuff. And to me, it's important because those are definitely a group of, of grassroots racers that uh, we've engaged with as a community here. And they're their event is just growing. So it's just, it's so cool to see them now doing a field trip. I feel like this little school of racers is uh, finally going on their first field trip and they're going to school us and how this stuff works. So at any rate, she gave us a, a, a nice video wrap up of what happened last time at Kakana International, uh, or I'm sorry, Wisconsin International Raceway in Kakana, Wisconsin, where the air is always fair and the woodchucks always chuck wood. So let's go right now to Steve Maknowitz, a.k.a. Michelle Mankowitz, and uh, hear exactly what went down last time in Kakana. What's up, producer guy? It is Steve here, uh, coming to you live from WIR. It's a beautiful evening. We're going to go around the circle, and we have... Uh, this here is Ryan Skiba, and Whitney, our um, master videographer, and Megan, our photographer, Jason Goldfinger, Dylan Pulley, 
uh, Aaron, mostly Andy, another Aaron, so we're not confused, Nitrous Chris, Mr. Cotus riding in cars with the boys, what's up? So we had lots of movement, like Chris's balls, on the list tonight, so <laughs> I am still sitting at number one, Chris and I had a practice uh, race tonight just to see how fun it was, and I think you fell asleep at the light, that's okay, I'm hoping the same thing happens next time. Um, the deal is, Chris is going to run on motor and I am going to spray the house down and stay at number one. Uh, number two then is Chris. Number three is who right now? Guy. Guy. Guy Bellinger is... Bell Anger. Bell Ang Anger. On pocket change is number three. Who's four? Jake. Jake. Jake big, Roberts. Big body Jake Roberts is number four. Ryan's five. Ryan Skiba <laughs> is five. Uh... Goldfinger? No, uh, Preston six. Preston, not, not nipples, nipples. it's Knipple. <laughs> is six. I'm seven. Goldfinger is seven. Uh, yeah. Dylan is eight. Who's not? Dustin is nine. Yep. Dust, Dustin, the awesome Dustin, he's over there, is nine. Do we have a new 10? Justin is 10. Yep. Just, Justin Howe. He is bringing down the house in number 10. <laughs> and we mentioned our gatekeeper the other night. Here's our gatekeeper. So I know that the audio was poopy the other night. We're going to do what we hey, can. damn it, we're taking a video. <laughs> we're aggressive. We're aggressive and we're pissed off because people are ruining our videos right now. Um, those are about all of the uh, updates that we have for this evening. The board is going to be updated. And you can check the page. Uh, Goldfinger is going to post that later. And uh, we don't have another race now until, well, Cots is a big one at Great Lakes Dragway on September 17th. And then we've got September 23rd here at WIR, and then we've got one the week after on September 30th, and then I think that's it for the season. Um, if you want to come into town this winter, or anybody that's listening, we're going to have a taco party, um, and everybody is welcome. So, from all of us here at WIR, see that's everybody. This is where you wave, everybody. <laughs> we are signing off. Sayonara. Oh my god, so there we have it. That is the update from the WIR top 10 list. Now, I wish, I really wish, guys, that we could just like feature something like this on Fans Choice and edit it down to make it real good. Maybe they should stream it on Facebook Live, or maybe somebody should take some video and send it to me. Hell, I'll edit it for you. But anyway, hey, that's our show. I hope you've had a good one. Uh, visit our Facebook page for current events. Um, visit the website for now and then updated um, you know, articles on what's going on and definitely links to all the current podcasts. Uh, go follow the WIR's Top 10 Bikes on Facebook. You heard them. You're invited. We're, we're one big happy family here, so... If you can't make it to Kakana this uh, summer, you know, go in the winter. Have yourself a little taco. But anyway, we need to say goodnight and we need to say goodbye. And we have a long sorry list to get to. So that's it. Peace and grease, baby. And hey, I need some, I really need some sign-offs. If you got some good ones, send them to me. I'll for sure use them. All right. Thanks. Bye. Creative writing, we'd like to extend an extreme, extreme apology to the following people, places, persons, things, and interests. All of you for listening to this episode thinking it would be totally, totally new and revamped when actually I realized after listening and editing that it's just new to me. Uh, sorry to the sand fire, 
the Blue Cut Fire and the Fish Canyon slash Complex Fire. And sorry to the L.A. County Fire Department. Sorry to Ride Apart, to BN Sports. Sorry to NASCAR, IMSA, USAC, SCCA, FIA, FAM, FLAN, which is just a Spanish word for pudding, uh, and NASCAR Euro. Sorry to Henry Wiles, Jared Mees, Jake Johnson. Sorry, Hayden Gillum, Jesse Yanich, and Andrew Luker. Sorry to ha- uh, Hammy Salbert and Sammy Halbert. Sorry to Dominic Calindras. Sorry to Brad Baker. Sorry to France. Sorry to England, just for being in the vicinity of France, I guess. Sorry to touch screen controls. Our apologies go out to Benjamin Bonneville. Fur Trappers. The state of Utah. Apologies to the Pleistocene era, any lakes or dinosaurs or people that may have existed during that time. I'm not 100% sure when the Pleistocene era is, and I'm not going to look it up. Sorry to Triumph. Sorry to Triumph Bonnevilles and Triumph Rocket Threes. Sorry to Guy Martin or Guy Martin. Sorry to Angela Fernandez, Ian Hutchinson, Sorry to Stock is for Squares podcast and anybody called the Stock versus Squares podcast. Sorry to Wiener Schnitzel, Roland Sands, Cycle News. Sorry to Norton Motorcycle Company. Sorry to Honda and Honda 300 owners. Sorry to Harbor Freight Tool Company. Sorry to Bob at I Like to Make Stuff. Sorry to the film 21 Days Under the Sun. Sorry to Atlas Shrugged. I'd like to say sorry to Paul and Sam. Thank you guys for the suggestions. Sorry to Union Grove, Wisconsin. And sorry all the folks of the WIR Top 10 Drag Bikes at the RSD. Go check them out this weekend at the Grove. Stay tuned to that page. I'm going to put the links to it in the show notes. I'm going to make a note of that right now. And sorry to all of you. Talk to you next week where we will be... We'll be working on this improved format. So uh, let's just not say improved. Let's just say a little new. All right. Thanks. Peace and grease, chicken feet. Bye. I wasn't looking at like a... Whoa, that was a weird glitch. Replace that baby. You know, replace... And for safety reasons, replace all seven connecting rods. Wow, what's going on? Latency. Jeez Louise. Uh, hmm. Uh, uh, out, not outsourced. Replaced.com. Or, I'm sorry, fanschoice.tv. Um, okay. Now. La-ba-da-ba-da. We're going to have a taco party. Taco party. Taco party. Taco party. Taco party. Taco party. Taco 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 ta